you have your Bibles, if you go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. It's on page 847 in the Black Pew Bibles, if you're following along. And if you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it and take it home with you. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. And the title of this sermon is Deity on a Donkey, Power and Poverty. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. On November 1st of 2010, the San Francisco Giants beat the Texas Rangers 11 to 7 to win their first World Series in 52 years. It was amazing. Uh, Fireworks were going off in neighborhoods. People were out on the streets high-fiving each other. Grown men were weeping, Um, literally in the living room I was in, one of my friends. Um, Absolute excitement. Well, three days later, on November 4th, there was a victory parade. Uh, Shannon and I were there. Uh, Again, amazing. Uh, Just so much fanfare. Each of the players got their own trolley car to ride down Market Street on. Uh, There was music. There was orange and black ticker tape everywhere. There were strangers chest bumping. There were cheers, chants, clapping. The atmosphere there was electric. And in some ways, this is similar to what we'll see in today's text. And in some ways, it's not at all alike. What I want us to see in today's text is the balance of power and poverty, authority and humility, divinity and humanity. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Our two points for today's text are these. Point one, power, and point two, poverty. So point one, power. From the beginning, uh, what I want us to see here is that this moment in the life of Jesus is a big deal. Uh, We've noted uh, that the book of Mark almost seems to be in a rush throughout. 
and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. But here, the last seven days of Jesus' life, time almost slows down. Mark zooms in on these days closely to say, this is it. This is the moment that all of time has been waiting for. Pay attention. John's gospel does the same thing. Over half of the book of John focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. It's the climax of the story. Now, if you haven't already picked it up, uh, I'm a pretty big Giants fan. And that parade was awesome. But that team was here and gone. They didn't last. Jesus, on the other hand, was inaugurating a kingdom that would never end. He was a king in entering the city toward victory, but not in a temporal way, in an eternal way. So think about it. Mark is writing to believers in Rome. They had seen Roman generals return from victory before. They had seen victory parades. Rome's glory, just like the giants, disappeared. It was here and gone. Not Jesus's. His glory and his kingdom will never end. This was something bigger and more important than a military victory parade. And Jesus wanted them to see this. So look what he does. Verses 2 and 3. Jesus says to two of his disciples, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. (laughs) At first read, that's kind of odd, right? Seems like Jesus is colt jacking a ride. (laughs) And doesn't this make Jesus look a little bit like a prima donna? Not just any cult will do. An unridden one. This reminds me of a story that I once heard about Van Halen, the band. Uh, When they would go on tour, they would put it in their contract writer that they wanted M&Ms in their green room before the show. But they wanted all of the brown M&Ms taken out. Uh, If the promoter didn't do this, they would forfeit the entire show at full price. High maintenance, huh? But there was a purpose to it. Uh, In 2012, the lead singer of Van Halen gave an interview and shared that the bowl of M&Ms was an indicator of whether or not the promoter had actually read the band's complex contract. Uh, At the time, the Van Halen show had the most cutting-edge light system and the largest light production ever done. Uh, The front man said this. He said, if I came backstage, having been um, one of the architects of this lighting and staging design, and I saw brown M&Ms on the catering table, then I guarantee the promoter had not read the contract writer, and we would have to do a serious line check of the entire stage setup. You see, if the lights weren't set up correctly, people could literally die from one of those things falling. M&M's were purposeful. So it is with Jesus' unridden colt. 
Once again, Jesus is living in absolute submission to the word of God. This unwritten cult is prophecy being fulfilled. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12 and 16 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. And then on verse 16 it says, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Do you see that? Zechariah prophecies that the Messiah would enter the city riding on a donkey. But this goes back even further than Zechariah. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is pronouncing blessings on his sons. And here's what he says. After passing over his firstborn Reuben and Simeon and then Levi, he zeroes in on Judah, who would be the line of the Messiah. So Genesis 49, verses 8 through 11, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He, was wa- he, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. You see, the people in this city knew their Old Testament well. And they knew that they had hoped for a king who would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. But why unridden? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, there was a principle that for royalty specifically for a king, no one, and I mean no one, was to ride on the king's horse or donkey. It was to be set apart for him and him alone. Jesus is signaling his kingship here, and his authority. But second, Numbers 19, Deuteronomy 21, and 1 Samuel 6, verse 7. Isn't that exciting? What are you talking about? Well, Kent Hughes, he tells us that in biblical culture and ancient culture in general, an animal devoted to a sacred task must be one that had not been put to ordinary use. Look at 1 Samuel 6, verse 7. It says, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. 
and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. Do you know what that cart was for? Carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in our text, in Mark 11, we have the true Ark of the Covenant, Jesus Christ being carried by an unridden, sacred colt. This is a sacred task, if there ever was one. Now, I pointed this out back in Mark chapter 10, but do you see how premeditated all of this is? Jesus doesn't do anything by mistake. He's completely in control of every single detail. He's submitting himself to God's will and purpose in the scriptures the whole way. Let's continue on. The disciples do what Jesus asks. They get the unridden colt and he rides it into the city. Verses 7 through 10. It says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! So what's going on here? Remember, Throughout the book of Mark, one of the distinctives of this book is what's known as the Messianic secret. Multiple times in Mark, we've seen Jesus do miracles or reveal himself up on a mountain and then say what? Don't tell anyone about this. But not here. He's allowing this display of kingship to happen out in the open. In the Old Testament, This is what they did when someone was anointed king. 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 12 and 13 is a good example of this. There's this guy named Jehu, and he's anointed king over Israel. And look at this. It says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king! (laughs) I love what Kent Hughes says here. He says this. He says, Not only did exuberant followers place their clothing on the donkey as a saddle for Jesus, some flung their robes on the ground as a gesture of reverence, indicating their willingness for him to have everything, even to trample their property if he so desired. Do you see that? Let me ask you this morning. What are you willing to reverently and joyfully place at Jesus' feet? ask that again. What are you willing to reverently and joyfully place at Jesus' feet? The truth is that the earth is his and all it contains. Are we willing for him to have everything, even to trample on our property if he so desired? He's the king. He demands all our allegiance. Do we revere him and worship him as such? Besides the garments, they're also waving palm branches, which is a symbol of peace. And look at what they're shouting. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, translated literally, means save, I pray. Save, I pray. They're they're shouting for salvation. And they're repeating the Hallel Psalms of Psalm 113 to 118. We prayed through one of them just a little bit ago. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. There's that word. Save us, we pray. O Lord, that's what they're shouting. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You see, these psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, they were songs that were sung in connection with the Passover meal to remember God delivering them out of Egypt. You see what's happening. They, they think that just as God delivered Israel from Egypt, that Jesus is about to deliver them from Rome. But he's not that kind of a king, is he? Instead, he's the lamb. As Denny Aiken says, he, he's not here to purge Israel of foreign domination. No, he's here to purge his people of their sin. I love that. Again, they're looking for something temporal. But Jesus is about to do something eternal. He most certainly is the king. He's the son of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the true ark of the covenant and the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. He's the Lord who's worthy of all of our possessions. He's parading down the street in absolute power. But he's also completely humble. Point two, poverty. So let's rewind just a little bit. Jesus is making it clear that he's the prophesied Messiah and king. But he's not the king and Messiah that they expected. Conquering giants ride down Market Street on personal trolley cars. Conquering generals ride into town on war horses, but not Jesus. He rode in on a donkey. Think about this for a minute. Jesus is different. Jesus is different. Even when it comes to other religions, Jesus is different. In Mark Dever's book, It Is Well, he notes this. He says, in no other manner are the differences between Muslims and Christians more sharply contrasted than in the difference between the characters and legacies of their prophets. Perhaps the contrast is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and Jesus entered Jerusalem. Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him were absorbed into this movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control as its new religion, political, and military leader. Today, in the palace of Istanbul, Turkey, Muhammad's purported sword is proudly on display. Jesus, on the other hand, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, accompanied by his 12 disciples. 
He was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm fronds, a traditional sign of peace. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the Jews mistook him for an earthly secular king who was to free them from the yoke of Rome. Whereas Jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom. Jesus came by invitation and not by force. Do you see that? He came as a king, but as a humble king, who came not to overthrow Rome, but to die for sinners. In the one place in Scripture where Jesus' heart, that the core of his being is described, look at what it says. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is God and Lord, and he's gentle and lowly. He's divinity. On a donkey. He's fully God and fully man. J.C. Ryle says this so well. He says, when he, meaning Jesus, crossed the Sea of Galilee, it was on a borrowed boat. When he rode into the holy city, it was on a borrowed beast. When he was buried, it was in a borrowed tomb. We have in this simple fact an instance of that marvelous union of weakness and power, riches and poverty, the Godhead and the manhood, which may be so often traced in the history of our blessed Lord. Who that reads the Gospels carefully can fail to observe that he who could feed thousands with a few loaves was himself sometimes hungry, and he who could heal the sick and infirm was himself sometimes weary. That he who could cast out devils with a word was himself tempted, and he who could raise the dead could submit himself to die. Jesus was unmistakably fully God and fully man. And this was essential for our salvation. Hear this clearly. To be a substitute for mankind, Jesus had to be fully man to be perfect and sinless and an acceptable sacrifice who could rise from the dead, he had to be fully God. He's the king of heavens. He's also the king of our souls. Hosanna, save us, we pray. Because of his power and his poverty, he can save us. And I love this last verse to, to cap it all off. Look at verse 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. At first glance, that seems pretty anticlimactic, huh? Garments on the ground, palm branches waving, Hosanna in the highest! And all he does is go to the temple, look around, and then go back out of town. But I want us to see 
what it is that Mark's showing us here. And again, this is so intentional. A couple of years ago, my roommate from college came into town. And we decided to go tour Santa Cruz Guitars. <laughs> my friend Zach is a legitimately great guitarist, and he wanted to go see it. So uh, I went with him. Uh, you can actually schedule tours to go tour Santa Cruz Guitars. Uh, if you don't know much about guitars, there's this guy here in town named Richard Hoover. Uh, who makes world-famous acoustic guitars. So, we go to the factory. We're thinking, uh, this is going to be awesome. You know, maybe one of the, the factory hands will, will show us around. But when we walked in, it, it wasn't a factory hand giving us the tour. It was Richard Hoover himself. It was epic. Well, at the end of the tour... We're in the office area, and there's this cardboard cutout of Richard Hoover. And there's Richard Hoover standing right next to the cardboard cutout of Richard Hoover. Uh, so I just had to. I pulled out my camera and, and took a, a picture of it. Richard Hoover standing next to a cardboard cutout of Richard Hoover. Why am I sharing this? Because that's what Mark is showing us here. Jesus, the true and better temple, is standing next to the temple that represented him. What was the temple? It was the place where God and man meet. It was a representation of the Garden of Eden. It was a place where sacrifices for sin happened. Jesus, the true Messiah, had come to save to restore his people to their garden home, to make that temple that he was standing next to obsolete. Hosanna, save us, we pray. How would God's people be saved? Not, not through the temple that wouldn't last, but through the temple that would be destroyed and restored three days later. God's people would be saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the same good news that we need today. How can we be saved? Not through our good works. Not through our status. Not through rituals and never-ending sacrifices. But through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we turn from sin and trust in him as the only hope of our salvation, we will be saved. If you've never made that life-altering decision, we invite you to do it today. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ as the only hope of your salvation. You will be saved. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray.